Hello, and welcome to Spacegate's Guide to Science Fiction. I'm your host, Spacegate, with a capital K, and I'm here to take you on a dystopian journey through science fiction. In today's episode, we will go back in time and visit Paris in the 20th century. So, get your ledgers out and start recording. It is finally time to take a first look into one of the most influential authors of modern science fiction. Yes, I am talking about the one and only Jules Verne. If you somehow managed to live your entire lives without having heard this name mentioned at least once, then you ought to be congratulated. Granted, his influence in the 21st century is waning, but it would be wrong to assume that he has been forgotten. Simply put, a great deal of what Verne suggested in his extensive list of extraordinary voyages concerning scientific discoveries and appliances has happened, while others proved truly fictional. Verne had a certain talent, as Eugene Weber notes in his introduction to Paris in the 20th century, quote, Imagination is the capacity to rearrange available data or to extrapolate from them, and Verne was a masterful extrapolator. End quote. The data available to Verne at his time must have seemed truly wondrous. Jules Verne was born in 1828 and died in 1905. He studied law, but quickly abandoned that for more artistic endeavours, writing comedies and libretti for operettas. He was friend with the literati of his time, including Alexandre Dumas and Georges Sand. His first big success came in 1863 with the publication of the novel Five Weeks in a Balloon. He was prolific in his writing, compiling an output of over 100 works of different formats and lengths, from short stories to plays, essays and poetry. His literary style cannot be called the revolutionary by any means, but the way he structures his stories have a certain charm that hook the reader immediately. You really want to know what happens. Verne understood perfectly how to construct a good mystery, and, most of the times, the payoff was also worth it in the end. His writing is not highbrow or pretentious, but comprehensible without being condescending. He was an Edgar Allan Poe superfan and read his works religiously. He even wrote a sequel to Poe's magnificent narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym of Nantucket called An Antarctic Mystery or The Sphinx of the Ice Fields. If you can't tell, I'm obviously suggesting you read both of these novels at some point. You won't regret it. Now, is Verne infallible in his writings? The answer is no. By our 21st century standards, he is not politically correct in a lot of his opinions. His depictions of race, and often women, are also problematic. But here's the deal. He lived and wrote at a time when feminism, colonial and post-colonial theories, gender studies and all the hullabaloo and rage in the Western Hemisphere that cancels creators of the past left and right were not a thing. So yes, you will find problematic imagery and opinions in his novels. Paris in the 20th century is no exception to that. Does this mean that we have to cancel Verne's work entirely? No. 
It simply means that we have to have an open discourse about why some of his ideas are not acceptable today. No one is suggesting adopting Verne's opinions for your own. The point of art in general is to start a conversation. If you cancel it entirely, you simultaneously cancel the conversation it is trying to start. Censorship is not the solution. It never was. And that's part of why Paris in the 20th century is such an important yet underrated dystopian novel of speculative fiction. There is a backstory to the publication history of this novel that warrants telling. Verne wrote Paris in the 20th century in 1863. It was a second full-length novel after Five Weeks in a Balloon, and he pitched it to his publisher, Hetzel, who rejected it by saying, quote, it's a hundred feet below five weeks in a balloon. Your Michel is a real goose with his verses. Can't he carry parcels and remain a poet? End quote. And, quote, no one today will believe your prophecy. End quote. The manuscript remained lost until, quote, Verne's great-grandson discovered it in 1989, when the sale of a family home forced him to dispense with a great bronze safe long believed to be empty. The keys to the safe had been lost. It had to be opened with a blowtorch. Temporarily tucked under a pile of linen, the pages discovered in 1989 were examined later and authenticated. It is perhaps for this very reason that this novel has received such little attention in the science fiction realm. The fact that it came out over a century after it had been written, even though translations of it were produced in over 30 languages in the 1990s. The technological predictions it makes are dated at that point. Some have indeed come to pass, while others are ludicrous, like the supersized ship called Leviathan 4, which had, quote, 30 masts and 15 chimneys, end quote. But, unfortunately, Paris in the 20th century is as relevant as ever. Let's see what this novel is all about, then. Verne imagines a Paris of 1960. Based on the scientific advances of the 1860s, he makes certain predictions about the way technology can evolve and what effects this would have in our lives. The story follows a 16-year-old boy named Michel, who is out of place. Michel is a relic of a past long gone. In a world where technology and money dominate every aspect of everyday lives, he, a young poet with a romantic heart, is a pariah. Education is carried out by the state, but the subjects taught are designed in such a way as to produce people who can benefit the system. Individuality or creativity is not encouraged, especially the latter. Richard Howard translates it for us, quote, For form's sake, some classes in literature were still taught, though these were sparsely attended and inappreciable. Indeed, anything but appreciated." End quote. Literature and anything remotely resembling the humanities is a dead end. They produce no bestsellers. Quote, but introductions to mathematics, textbooks on civil engineering, mechanics, physics, chemistry, astronomy, courses in commerce, finance, industrial arts, 
whatever concerned the market tendencies of the day, sold by the millions of copies." End quote. At the very beginning of the novel, Michelle has just graduated the Academic Credit Union, an equivalent of a college or university, and receives the only prize for Latin verse. In a time when poetry is frowned upon, receiving such a prize is a disgrace. Quote, Nonetheless, Michel stepped forward and faced down his detractors with a certain aplomb. He advanced to the dice and snatched rather than received his prize from the director's hand. His prize consisted of a single volume, the latest factory manual. End quote. Michel returns to his uncle's house where he lives because he is an orphan, and in the third chapter titled aptly An Eminently Practical Family, the disparaging differences between his aunt, uncle and cousin and himself are made abundantly clear. His uncle, quote, utterly scorned the arts, and artists even more. For him, painting stopped with a tinted drawing, and drawing with a diagram, sculpture with a plaster cast, music with a whistle of locomotives, and literature with stock market quotations, end quote. He was the director of the Catacomb Company of Paris and of the driving force in the home. Basically, he was the director of a company that, quote, consisted in warehousing the air in those huge underground vaults so long unused. Here it was stored under a pressure of 40 to 50 atmospheres, a constant force which conduits led to the factories and the mills, wherever a mechanical action became necessary. To cut a long story short, and to leave you with the opportunity to discover the book for yourself as well, Michelle is forced to start working at a bank after this lovely tirade by his uncle. Quote, Yet I have discerned in you certain seeds which must be rooted out. You tend to flounder in the sands of the ideal, and hitherto the clearest result of your efforts has been this prize for Latin verses, which you so shamefully brought here yesterday. Let us reckon up the situation. You are without fortune, which is a blunder. Moreover, you have no parents. Now, I want no poets in my family, you must realise." He is utterly useless even making a fool of himself at some point, and he is therefore moved to a somewhat solitary job dictating numbers to a man named Kinsonas, whose marketable skill is that he has a beautiful handwriting. I kid you not, Verne predicted all sorts of crazy inventions, including calculators and even emails in this novel, not to mention space rockets that can travel to the moon and others, but he did not predict recording devices or, well, basically, a word processor. Anyway, this Kitsunas turns out to be another artist like Michel. He, unlike Michel the poet, is a musician and happens to have a connection to Michel's late father, who was also a musician. Kitsunas was his student back in the day. The two strike up a friendship and the older man takes the inexperienced and naive boy under his wing. I will say here that there are some veiled references that could be interpreted under the light of queer studies, suggesting that Kintsunas was potentially gay, but I will not delve into this possibility much. I'll only say that Kintsunas seems fairly interested in Michelle, and his ideas on women, of which we get an entire chapter, 
are certainly something. Michelle has also found a long-lost uncle on his mother's side of his, called Huguenin, who is even older and a book hoarder. We can say with certainty that Ray Bradbury was unaware of Huguenin's existence when he wrote his Fahrenheit 451, because that novel came out in 1953, and Paris in the 20th century was still taking its beauty sleep at that time in the safe. But Huguenin's massive collection of books in his tiny apartment definitely echoes Bradbury's vision of book hoarders, albeit in a less extreme manner. People like Huguenin are tolerated in Vance Paris as long as they are productive members of society. Bradbury's vision is way darker than that. Both Kinsonas and Huguenin are aware of this and, as a result, follow the party line, as we would say. They do their work to earn their living and, in their spare time, enjoy their literature and music, respectively. Michelle, being only 16 years old, fails to see the wisdom in this compromise and, with his youthful, idealistic soul, believes that he can change the world, that he can make it love the arts again. Falling in love with Lucy helps him find his voice for a while, but the collection of poems he writes fails to impress any publisher and so he ends up on a bleak and cold December night, walking the streets of Paris, finally reaching a cemetery where all the great artists of the past are buried and, quote, falling unconscious on the snow, end quote, among the graves, probably dies of frostbite. I say probably because the novel ends there. We don't know whether he was found in time and revived. But, considering that the entire novel makes it plain to see that Michel is never going to find his place in this industrialized age, dying among his idols is a very poetic way to go. Now, you'll wonder perhaps why exactly this is considered a dystopian image of Verne's future. The author makes it clear that life in general has improved on a technological level. Quote, what would one of our ancestors have said upon seeing these boulevards lit as brightly as by the sun, these thousand carriages circulating noiselessly on the silent asphalt of the streets, these stores as sumptuous as palaces from which the light spread in brilliant patches, these avenues as broad as squares, these squares as wide as plains, these enormous hotels which provided comfortable lodging for 20,000 travellers, these wonderfully lit viaducts, these long, elegant galleries, these bridges flung from street to street, and finally these glittering trains which seemed to furrow the air with fantastic speed." End quote. But at the same time, Verne also says this, quote, some neighbourhoods offered no lodging whatever to inhabitants of the capital, specifically the Ile de la Cité, where there was room only for the Bureau of Commerce, the Palace of Justice, the Prefecture of Police, the Cathedral, the Morgue. In other words, the means of being declared bankrupt, guilty, jailed, buried, and even rescued. Public buildings had driven out houses." End quote. This leads to overpriced apartments that are decentralised and, even then, only the ultra-rich can afford more than a one-bedroom apartment. On the other side, wars no longer happen because, quote, 
The links of commerce are drawing nations ever closer together. The British, the Russians, the Americans all have their banknotes, their rubles, their dollars invested in our commercial enterprises. Isn't money the enemy of the bullet? End quote. Verne here predicts both capitalism and globalism, but he fails to see that war is actually a profitable business, therefore it is perpetuated. However, one must admire this notion that capitalism would make wars redundant. Here's a true idealistic notion that never came to fruition. In this centralised form of government that Verne imagines, where technological advances too many to name individually are plenty, there is also room for one very specific form of entertainment. The theatre is, unsurprisingly, not dead. However, the way it is conducted, it might as well be. The terrifying notion of art controlled by the state, which has been tried in various forms by authoritarian regimes over the centuries all over the world, and is still a thing in our days in some parts of the globe, becomes a new nightmare in this novel. Verne dedicates an entire chapter describing how Le Grand Entrepot Dramatique, or the Great Theatrical Warehouse, operates. Quote, the creation of the Grand Entrepot Dramatique did away with the troublesome necessity of authors. The employees received their monthly salaries, extremely high ones, moreover, and the state collected the theatre's receipts. Hence, the state was in the position of controlling dramatic literature. If Le Grand Entrepot produced no masterpieces, at least it amused docile audiences by harmless works. Old authors were no longer performed. Occasionally, and as an exception, some work by Molière was put on at the Palais Royal. End quote. The theatre, which incidentally includes the musical theatre as well, becomes an industrialised institution where authors would produce plays by the minute in an assembly line, as if it were a car or other machine. It consists, quote, of five major divisions. First, high and genre comedy. Second, historical and modern drama. Third, vaudeville, strictly speaking. Fourth, opera and operetta. Fifth, reviews, pantomimes and official occasions. End quote. As the director of this enterprise explains to Michel when he starts working there, quote, We are not concerned with novelty here. All personality must be dispensed with. You will have to blend into a vast ensemble which produces collective works of an average appeal. End quote. Again, unsurprisingly, Michel fails at this as well. It must be said here that while this form of running a state is highly problematic, it also tries its best to accommodate its citizens. The example of Michel is telling. In his first job at the bank, he moves a couple of times from different positions before landing the job that introduces him to Kinsonas. His firing is actually the result of an accident. Working with Kinsonas was probably the only thing Michel was somewhat adequate at in this technologically driven society. The same happens at the Grand Entrepot Dramatique. They try to find a suitable position for him in the first three divisions of the industry. Failing all those, 
and because he thought it beneath himself to work in musical theatre and or reviews, Michel resigns to save himself from their humiliation, ending up desolate and in complete poverty. There are, of course, some plot holes, especially towards the end. Why, for example, can't his uncle Huguenin take him in? He has a stable job and an apartment. Verne explains this seemingly by giving a big emphasis on Michel's pride. He tells no one of his close friends that he has lost his source of income after the theatre, and he isolates himself entirely from everyone who ever stood by him. Huguenin, while actively discouraging him from pursuing his dream of poetry, would most certainly object even more to him dying of hunger. Michel, as far as his friends go, is not unlucky. They are kind, and they understand his plight. Michel's downfall, in the end, is the result of his youthful stubbornness. You know, we all, as teenagers, tried to go our own ways, against the advice of our parents or guardians. If we were lucky, those choices were not harmful. If not, well, everyone has their own tale to tell. Verne, of course, makes a very deliberate choice in having his protagonist be like this. Through Michel's extreme experiences, he allows the reader to study a world where the arts and the humanities are despised and only used under strict governmental oversight. This brings us to our current state in our real world. At the time of this recording, it is the year 2021 and we are exactly one year into a pandemic that has rearranged the entire fabric of our civilization. And guess what happened? The arts drowned in this new state of affairs. Literally. Theatres, concert halls, cinemas, museums, anything remotely connected to artistic expression was shut down even though these institutions were among the first everywhere to conduct studies on virus transmission and to come up with plans that ensured that both artists and audiences alike would be safe in their premises. Millions of artists around the world are suffering. Their livelihoods are threatened, if not already destroyed. And the audiences? Well, the psychological effects of isolation will plague us all for years to come, but being denied access to the arts makes things even worse. And yes, a great deal of blame falls upon the governments all over the world. Thinking in financial terms, they ignored the arts for a very long time when they prepared various relief bills. And let's face it, artists are pretty incapable of organising a strong lobby that could fight for their survival. So, while Verne's dystopia is not created as a result of a disease, but because technology and capitalism took over, his vision of an artless society rings very true today. The people he introduces us to, that look down upon the arts, are outright evil. Those that still appreciate the arts are kind, even though they are disillusioned and hopeless. A society that disregards its artists is a doomed society. If there's one novel by Jules Verne that you absolutely must read, it's Paris in the 20th century. That and the Antarctic mystery, obviously. I could go on and on about Paris in the 20th century, 
There are many aspects of it that I find truly fascinating, like the fact that Verne actually predicted the advent of minimalist and electronic music, or his quite adorable opinions on various authors and composers of the past. But these aspects are not related to science fiction, so I'll spare you the diatribe. As always, you're invited to discover the source material for yourselves. I'm just making some suggestions here. Before I leave you, here's what you can expect from our next episode. What if language and time were somehow connected? Curious? Well, tune into the next episode to find out more. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like, subscribe, rate, review and recommend it to your friends. If you really enjoyed this podcast, you can buy me a cup of virtual coffee. How? Well, you'll find out in the link from the show notes. You can find me on Twitter at SpaceGate. Thank you for listening, and until next time. Thank you.